Rust Belt Roundup, Episode 3, Out of the Rust. Welcome back to the third and final episode of the Rust Belt Roundup. Today, we will be exploring the future of Ohio, its fight to climb its way out of the rust, and the impact the Rust Belt mindset had on the state and its people, as well as the nation at large. Before we dive into the meat of things, I want to give a recap of the story thus far in order to summarize events, key ideas, and themes which are central to the story. The state of Ohio, founded in 1803, was blessed with an abundance of natural resources, rivers, lakes, and a central location. The people who lived within the state, originating from all over the world, developed into a people who would come to dominate the wider United States. Early on, the people of the state exhibited many of the defining features of what would make them Ohioans. The people who would soon become Ohioans held an idea that the local authority was very important, and the local identity of towns was important, and these two factors fast set a precedent for local loyalties amongst the population. While they would all one day be Ohioans, they were Clevelanders and Cincinnatians first and foremost. These local identities would play a large role in the future sports rivalries that have come to define the Buckeye State. As the local loyalties developed, so too developed a stubborn streak which was found throughout all of Ohio but was centered around the Western Reserve region, which was home to the city of Cleveland. This stubborn perseverance was born out of the early strife of the Western Reserve. It was a land which was fertile and held great potential, but it was also hard to access. Instead of moving away, the people who called the place home stubbornly held fast to the potential the land held. This determination would pay off greatly as the Western Reserve, once it was connected via canals and rails to the rest of the state and the wider U.S., would become the center of Ohio trade and home to its leading city, one that would eventually dwarf even the queen city of Cincinnati and the capital of Columbus. But don't tell them that. As Ohio grew in population, it also grew in industrial importance. Ohio's natural resources made it a prime candidate for industrial production. Its river systems, extensive canal works, and early adoption of the railroad made the state central to the transportation of industrial goods and resources. The people of Ohio were hardworking and industrious and often hostile to central government, which made them prime workers for factories. All these factors combined together to turn the already agricultural powerhouse of Ohio into an industrial powerhouse. This dominance turned to leadership when, during the Civil War, Ohio would provide the North with the most troops per capita of any state and gave the Union its most prominent generals, including Ulysses S. Grant, who led the Union armies as they fought the rebels, and General William T. Sherman, who led the Union forces as they set fire to the South. This military leadership would swiftly become political, as during the Reconstruction era and into the early 1920s, a series of Ohioan presidents held office and led the nation. Even as their political power would wane, the industrial might of the Midwest, led by Ohio, would continue to chug on and into the 1930s and 40s, reaching its height around the 50s and 60s. This industrial strength, however, would soon begin to wane and collapse in on itself. External competition with foreign industrial production, coupled with internal shifts in workforce power, union battles, and the rise of the Sun Belt in the South, would eventually cause the rains to fall on the Midwest and turn the steel heart of Ohio into rust and ruin. This fall from grace was devastating to most of the Midwest, but Ohio, being the heart of the Midwest, felt the greatest amount of pain. 
Factories all across the state would shut down. Workers were laid off, and communities, like those of Youngstown, would fall into depression and despair. The ever-present growth rate the state experienced since its inception slowed in the 1960s and stagnated in the 70s, and finally fell in the 80s. Cleveland, the beating heart of shipping and oil, saw its population flee in droves to the tune of hundreds of thousands over the course of 20 years from 1950 to 1970. Cleveland soon became known as the Mistake on the Lake, which was a pretty bad nickname to begin with, but it didn't help that shortly after obtaining this nickname, the city lived up to the nickname by having its river, the Cuyahoga River, catch fire. I'm going to pause for a moment and let that one sink in. The river, a body of water, caught fire. I mean, I come from Chicago originally, and we never once had a fire so bad it caught the river alight. Just one that burned the whole city to the ground and was started by a cow. Moving on. The economic struggles would soon turn to societal struggles, as with no money to fund things like education and public works, the land and people would begin to crumble, much like the factories they once worked at. Education scores would drop drastically throughout the 70s and, and got even worse in the 90s. This domino effect would topple most of what made Ohio the leading state of the Midwest and the wider United States. And while cities like Cleveland and Cincinnati had it bad, the places that had it worst were the true one-industry towns, like Youngstown, or as it was once known, Steeltown, USA. As Dr. Bindis and Dr. de Blasio talked about last episode, if Ohio was the beating heart of industry in the United States, Youngstown was the steel ventricle of that heart, pumping out more steel than any other location in all of the state and arguably all of the nation. It's kind of hard to argue with the sheer volume of steel Youngstown was producing annually at its height. Then again, people will argue over the smallest things. But, in its defense, you don't get called Steeltown USA for nothing, am I right? Anyway, Youngstown was the steel capital of the U.S., but this title would soon become a curse. Though it had always been an industrial town, it was only ever really a one or two industry town. Originally, as I talked about in episode one, the Mahoning Valley was home to Ohio's iron industry. Well, guess what town lies smack dab at the heart of the Mahoning Valley? That's right, Youngstown. To refresh your memory and to bring some foreshadowing I did in the first episode full circle, Youngstown was originally a town of iron and coal. The coal was used mostly to fuel the iron production. Eventually, steel supplanted iron as the main metal of industry, and so Youngstown swapped over to steel production. Now, the key thing to look at is the swapped over part. You see, Youngstown's iron industry was consumed by the new steel industry, not joined by it. The whole of the Steel Valley was dedicated to one industry with everything else ancillary to it. Its coal production, while it lasted, was used to fuel the iron and later steel industries. The rail systems were built and the riverways maintained to export goods and import raw materials. Farms were maintained to feed the people. The people lived there to work in the factories, rail yards, and docks. Schools were built to educate workers and their families. The list goes on and on. The town was steel, and only steel. And so, when steel production in the southern U.S. and other parts of the world began to outpace the steel production in Steeltown, USA, the industry moved out. And well, have you ever played a game of Jenga? As the brick was pulled, and the tower fell over, 
the cost was great. Unemployment in the valley would reach over 20% and stay there for over 20 years, and the town, known for steel and hard work, would swiftly become known for rust and lost dreams. And I want to focus in on the lost dreams part. You see, Youngstown was the poster child of the Ohio industrial machine, the exemplar town for prosperity and the American dream, the home of the hardworking, good-natured, humble, blue-collar man with his picket-fenced house, wife and two kids, apple pie, the whole nine yards. Yet, when the industry collapsed, so too did that ideal life, and along with it, the broader idea of the American dream. Because even when it was falling apart, Ohio was still changing the nation. For the longest time, the American dream was, in essence, what I had just described. The promise of industry was the promise of that life. And yet, when industry failed, when those promises failed to materialize, the hope that that dream had died. The American dream became the American reality. The reality of cynical rust and bitter memory. Hard work doesn't always pay off. A steady job doesn't always lead to a house and home. Nine to five isn't always enough. For many, the loss of this dream was just that. The loss of a dream. A pipe dream destined to never become reality. Something to think about and wish for, but inevitably move on from and find something new to cling to or to hope for. But for some, this loss of dream was a loss of reality. Many workers and their families were actively living that dream when the rust set in, and therefore lost everything. That loss would turn to anger, that anger to bitterness. But slowly, over time, as a generation passed, and then another, slowly that bitterness turned into resolve. That resolve became determination. That determination became hope. Taking a step back from the Mahoning Valley and looking at the rest of the state, some cities would be spared from the strife of the Rust Belt. As bad as things got for the mistake on the lake, Cleveland had enough economic diversity to stave off much of the rust. It was able to maintain enough jobs and trade to keep its population, the population that stuck around anyway, mostly employed. Meanwhile, Columbus avoided the rust due to it being the center of government in the state, and as with many centers of government, weather the storm through political necessity, if nothing else. As the industrial machine of Ohio slowly rusted and broke apart, these few cogs in the machine were able to keep turning and therefore keep the state from total ruin, and they would later aid in future recovery. Now that we have brought things up to speed and discussed the Rust Belt ruining the Midwest and Ohio, I would like to now dive into how Ohio has come to recover from the Rust Belt. Even as industry failed and crumbled, and people fled the state in droves, one thing remained the same, the political power of Ohio. As we touched on earlier in this episode, and in the first episode, Ohio once held a stranglehold on U.S. politics for years with a series of Ohioan presidents. Though the high point of Ohioan political dominance is long since past, the prevalence and importance of Ohio in the political scene is still as strong as ever. Ohio is considered a swing state or a battleground state in the presidential elections, and for 52 years, the person who won Ohio in the presidential election won the election as a whole. 
Now, this is not to say that Ohio was always the deciding factor. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. Rather, it's to say that Ohio tended to be the canary in the coal mine for the elections, still able to tap into the heartbeat of the American people and voting in a manner which aligned with the majority of the nation. Outside of the presidential elections, Ohio's congressional representation is nothing to sneeze at. While it never held as many seats as states like Texas or California, at its height in the 30s and in the 60s, it held 24 seats. And even though that number has fallen since those days, it still has an arguably strong presence with a current 15 seats, placing it around the 8th most seats in Congress. This political importance meant that, even when it fell into rust, the state of Ohio still maintained its importance within the U.S. as a leading state. No longer the leading state, but still up there for sure. The 1980s and 90s were a tough time for Ohio as it struggled its way into the 21st century. Its economy was in ruins, its population was on the decline, and its education system was struggling to find funding for itself. And yet, Ohio marched on. And slowly, over time, has pushed back against the rust and begun to make strides towards economic growth and stability. The key thing to look at is that Ohioans have seemed to come to have a general acceptance that they will never reach the heights they once had, and they're okay with that. What they want is to reach a point that is simply better. To them, so long as next year is better than this year and no worse than last year, it's fine by them. And by living this mentality, they have marched their way out of the slump. From 1997 to 2019, Ohio's GDP has steadily grown. The unemployment rate has gotten steadily better, even dipping below the national average at several points in the 2010s. And the anomaly that was 2020 aside, currently has an unemployment rate below that of the national average by roughly a full percentage. One study even marked Ohio as having the seventh largest economy in the U.S., that's 7th out of 50 states. That's pretty good. Additionally, Ohio has not left the industrial stage completely, simply shifting its focus away from steel and into heel. Horrendous war crime level puns aside, medical industry in Ohio is the new steel, with the medical sector seeing the highest growth rate within the economy of Ohio, coupled with the state being home to multiple world-renowned medical facilities and institutions, has turned Ohio from the steel capital of the United States into the medical capital of possibly the world. All around, Ohio has steadily made a comeback, and though the scars left by the rust may never truly heal, the overall health of the state has been secured, not by industry or politics, but by the secret weapon of Ohio, the people. As I stated before around 963 words ago, 964 now, Ohioans had fallen into bitterness and cynicism, and fell back upon their independent natures and disdain for the government. This bitterness, however, would slowly morph and evolve. You see, as someone who hails from outside the state of Ohio, I can say two things for certain about every Ohioan I have ever met. One, they are very polite and very nice. Weirdly so. Honestly, it's a little bit unsettling at times. Anyway, the bigger point is that number two, they are stubborn. <sighs> well, stubborn is the wrong word. Stubborn is not backing down from an argument even though you're wrong. These people, Ohioans are more 
tenacious. That's the word, tenacious. They fight through anything and everything presented to them, find pride in something, anything they can, and hold on to that pride and determination through thick and thin. Need proof? Look at a Browns fan. For a more academic and less joking example, read the book Voices from the Rust Belt. It is a phenomenal collection of stories and real-world experiences from the diverse population of the Rust Belt region. The stories coming out of Ohio all have this air of nostalgia and hope and pride. The stories like A Girl's Youngstown talk about the nostalgia people felt for the old days, but when asked about the bad times, the people just kind of shrug it off. The women in the stories didn't view it as their history. Their history was of the good old days, and their hopes were that they raised their kids correctly, and that those kids' lives would be better. These stories show the determination and the hope of the Ohio people, that in spite of the industrial fall from grace, the people would live on, endure, and make it work, and eventually find a way to make it better, and eventually climb out of the rust. And this wraps up the Rust Belt Roundup. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed not only this episode, but this whole series on the Rust Belt history of Ohio. I hope you have a great day.